السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects listeners, we gather once again for the continuing tafsir, commentary of Surah Al-Hajarat. Last week we reached the end of verse number 11, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of the prohibition of mocking, taunting, one another and calling out to one another with offensive names and labels. This verse wasn't in isolation, but it follows the previous verse in which Allah says, That the believers are but brothers. So reconcile your two brothers and be wary of Allah in the hope that you, you may receive mercy. And then Allah says, O oh, believers, do not mock one another. So what this clearly shows is that this is the method of achieving and realizing that brotherhood. Not by mere slogans, but by implementing the teachings of Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And first and foremost is that the believer should avoid those things which break the bonds of brotherhood. And Allah begins with three sins. They're all sins of the tongue. Mocking one another, taunting one another, and calling out to one another with offensive titles, labels and names. Following on from that, that was the end of the last verse, and following on from there, in the 12th verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues with further sins. <coughs> and just as in the previous verse he mentions three sins of the tongue, in the following verse he mentions three <coughs> sins. One of them is clearly to do with the tongue, one of them is clearly to do with the heart and mind. And one involves the heart, the mind, the body, and even the tongue. So what are these three sins? And again, these three sins aren't mentioned at random, but they consistently and continuously follow on from the previous three sins all of which break the bonds of brotherhood. So Allah Azza wa Jal says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu jtanibu kathiran min al-dhan. 
إن بعض الظن إثم ولا تجسسوا ولا يغتب بعضكم بعضا أيحب أحدكم أن يأكل لحم أخيه ميتا فكرهتموه واتقوا الله إن الله تواب رحيم Allah says, O oh believers, abstain from excessive speculation. Indeed, some conjecture is a sin. And do not spy, or rather, do not search for faults. And do not backbite one another. Would one of you wish that he consumes the flesh of his dead brother? So be wary of Allah. Indeed, Allah is oft relenting, most merciful. That's the translation of the verse. If we can systematically go through the verse, Allah first says, O believers, refrain from excessive dhan. Kathiram min al-dhan, refrain from, abstain from excessive dhan. So what's dhan? Dhan means speculation, conjecture, guesswork. And in the context of this discussion, what it refers to is... Forming an opinion, thinking something, believing something, imagining something, without evidence, i.e. speculation and conjecture. But this is more to do with other people, <coughs> since this is in the context of brotherhood. So do not imagine things about one another. Do not resort to speculation and conjecture. A believer has to develop a character which is just and upright, which is very balanced. And that means a believer's thoughts are balanced about everything. One shouldn't be irrational, but one should form one's opinions on reason, on the basis of evidence, on proof. And one should side with the truth, side with the proof. As Allah says in a verse, وَلَوْ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِكُمْ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا كُونُوا قَوَّامِينَ بِالْقِسْطِ شُهَدَاءَ لِلَّهِ وَلَوْ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِكُمْ that, O believers, be establishers of, or be upholders of justice, witnesses for the sake of Allah. Even though this testimony may be against yourselves. Or even against one's parents and relatives. So if the, if the evidence is there, then one shouldn't be bigoted. Even if it means that one has to accept about oneself that I am wrong. 
So a believer should have this character of justice, of standing for the truth, with the truth, relying on evidence, not on hearsay, gossip, or mere speculation and conjecture. One's thoughts must be correct and pure. And when one starts thinking too much, one can even think ill of Allah. And it's true. In a hadith related by Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Allah says, Ana inda dhanni abdi bi. It's a very beautiful long hadith. Ana inda dhanni abdi bi. وَأَنَا مَعْهُ إِذَا ذَكَرَنِي فَإِنْ ذَكَرَنِي ذَكَرْتُهُ فِي نَفْسِهِ فَإِنْ ذَكَرَنِي فِي نَفْسِهِ ذَكَرْتُهُ فِي نَفْسِهِ وَإِنْ ذَكَرَنِي فِي مَلَئٍ ذَكَرْتُهُ فِي مَلَئٍ خَيْرٍ مِّنْهِ وَإِنْ تَقَرَّبَ إِلَيَّ شِبْرًا تَقَرَّبْتُ إِلَيْهِ ذِرَاعًا وَإِنْ تَقَرَّبَ إِلَيَّ ذِرَاعًا تَقَرَّبْتُ إِلَيْهِ بَاعًا وَإِنْ أَتَانِي يَمْشِي أَتَيْتُهُ هَرْوَلَةً أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم Prophet says, Allah says, I am with my servant as he thinks of me. Literally, I am with the thoughts of my servant of me. And I am with him when he remembers me. So if he remembers me in his nafs, in his soul, then I remember him in my soul. And if he remembers me in a gathering, then I remember him in a gathering which is far better than that gathering. And if he draws close to me by one span, I draw closer to him by a cubit. And if he comes close to me by a cubit, I come close to him by two arms' length. And if he comes to me walking, I go to him running. This is a hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari. So the beginning of the hadith is what concerns us today. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I am with my servant's thought of me. Which simply means that as he thinks of me, I shall be with him. The meaning is, if he entertains a good opinion of me, of mercy, of hope, of love, affection, of fulfilling my promise, then I will be just as he thinks of me. But if he thinks ill of me, If he despairs, loses hope, entertains ill thoughts, and we do, why isn't Allah answering my prayers? Why isn't Allah giving me what I want? Why isn't Allah doing for me what I thought he would be or he should be? And so on. So if one entertains such ill thoughts about Allah, thoughts of despair, even in bereavement, many in their panic, in the pain of their bereavement, 
and in their rash moments, and as an immediate reaction to their suffering and pain, they often blaspheme. Why did Allah take my beloved away from me? It could be a parent, it could be a sibling or a child. And of course, later people realize, but as that lady was by a grave, she was weeping. And not only was she weeping, but she was in a state of severe grief and mourning. And the Prophet said to her, be patient. So she turned, she never recognized who he was. So she turned to him and said, away with you. For you have not been afflicted with the suffering that I have. Prophet left her, went home. She either inquired or was informed that that was a messenger of Allah so she arrived at his house and found no doorman, no guard. She sought his audience and she sought his forgiveness. So the Prophet said, That patience is at the first shock. Meaning, later everyone realizes, everyone calms down, everyone comes to term, terms with their loss, with their grief. People become more rational, more accepting, more reason, reasonable about the whole thing. But it's, what happens later is not really what counts. What counts is one's immediate reaction. That's true sabr. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ, when he lost his son Ibrahim, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiyallahu anhum, saw him weeping. So he said, Ya Rasulallah, even you weep on this occasion? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa explained that the eyes weep and the heart grieves, but the tongue does not utter except that which pleases Allah. So, in one's grief, sorrow, pain, bereavement, at times one not only has ill thoughts about Allah, but actually utters ill words and blasphemous words. So, as a Muslim, we are expected to ensure that our, not only is our speech pure, but even our thoughts remain pure. And that our thoughts remain pure about Allah, that we don't resort to think, overthinking, conjecture, speculation, and not only should our thoughts about Allah be pure, but what really matters today in this com context and in this discussion is that our thoughts about each other are pure. That's what really matters. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O believers, refrain from excessive speculation and conjecture. He is referring to what we think about each other in everyday life and specifically when we see something from someone when we hear something from someone about someone we should always give it a favorable interpretation never an unfavorable or negative interpretation 
We should be fair. We should treat others as we would want to be treated ourselves. And at times there can be lots of explanations. I remember a story once related by a scholar. He says that, this is in a Muslim country, he says that someone had agreed to come and see him. And so he arranged an appointment with that person. That person had to, he never knew him personally, but he identified himself that I am such and such a person. This is my name, these are my details. So he gave his family name, I think his father's name, well, his name, his father's name, family name, where he was from. And he agreed to meet with this scholar at a particular time. And so, the scholar, something happened, and they couldn't meet. So, and then, later, A person came to meet him. Actually, this person came to meet him after the agreed time. So they arranged to meet after Salah in the masjid. And the person was coming from out of the city. The person met him. And that was that. It so happened that the, the person who rang him the first time, he contacted him again. And said, I'm sorry, I couldn't come that day. I'd like to come and meet you. She says, what are you talking about? You came to see me. She says, no, I never. So he said, yes, you did. You asked about this? He says, no. He said, then, subhanAllah, long story, but to cut it short, what transpired is that this person had agreed with this scholar to come and meet him in the masjid on a particular day after one particular salah. He couldn't make it. By sheer coincidence, another person of the same name, with the same father's name, from out of the city came to meet the scholar. He thought this was him. You could have many explanations. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu says, that whenever you see something, sorry, whenever you hear something from your brother, as long as you can give it a favorable interpretation, give it a favorable interpretation. Things happen. You could see someone somewhere. I'll relate to my own story. A few years ago, we went to the city center with one of my students and since in the city centre parking is extremely difficult we went uh, late at night and in, in the evening and we were trying to find parking no parking was available 
So there was an open car park. So the place we went to, we parked the car outside and we went in and we inquired from the uh, proprietor that where can we park the car? So he said, oh, we don't have a car park, but next door there is a, a shared car park. So go there and just park, that's fine. So we were, we, that's where we were supposed to go. So we followed his instructions. We went round the corner and we parked. There, there was a guard there. So we said, oh, we've just come from uh, this place round the corner. And he's told, yeah, he says, yes, come and park here. Parked up. Then we went, parked and we went. Some time later, we came out. And the gates were locked of the car park. I was thinking, what's going on here? And there were lots of cars inside, but the gates were locked. And now it was quite late, about 10 o'clock in the evening, uh, at night. So we started looking around in, in the city centre. There was no one there that we could ask. So, and the place we had come out of, we couldn't go back to him either. Because he had gone. But what do we do now? So, eventually a guard came, but a different one to the previous one. And he came and he stood at the gates. So we said to him, our car's in there. She said to us, show us your passes. He said, we don't have any passes. Your colleague let us in earlier on, that's our car there. And he said, no. He said, this is a private car park. So we said, well, we were told it's a shared car park. He says, no, this is a private car park. And you shouldn't have been let in. Where's your pass? We don't have a pass. So we said, who does it belong to? So he said, the casino next door. <laughs> so we said, in there. So we said, what do we do now? The student who was with me, he's from out of the city, and he actually told me he'd be coming today, but he's not here. But Khairan. He, so... We said, what do we do? So he says, well, you have to go and get a pass. <laughs> now, we were both in thobes and... So I said to him, I'm not going in. And he says, no, Sheikh, you wait here. So he went inside. Now, Allah knows what happened. I'm standing there all alone. And half an hour later, he still hadn't come out. <laughs> So I said, Inna lillahi wa inna I'm calling him and there's no answer because inside the casino he had to go down, there was no signal, which I found out later. So I went looking for him. <laughs> and I went as far as I could just to the foyer and I called him and I couldn't find him. And I, there was a receptionist there, he said, Are you looking for your colleague? He's downstairs. So I said, can you call him? So they called him. So I said, what's going on? So he said, oh, Sheikh, they won't give us a pass. They said, you have to become a member. Inna lillahi wa inna And he was trying to haggle with them, convince them. Khairan. About 45 minutes later, we both came out of the casino. And when we did... There were a few Muslim taxi drivers going past. <laughs> and I said, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Imagine what they must be thinking. 
So, at times, if you see something, there, there can be a very innocent and valid explanation. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu says that if you hear something from your fellow Muslim, then as long as you, as long as you can give it a favorable interpretation, make sure you give it a favorable interpretation. It's related from Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. Allah alam, we've always heard this about Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. That if you hear or see something from your fellow Muslim, and you can, there are 99 negative explanations for that thing, and only one good explanation given the benefit of the doubt, and apply that one good explanation interpretation to Do not think ill. Do not resort to conjecture. Do not resort to speculation. In a very beautiful long hadith related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim in their Sahih and others, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, إِيَّاكُمْ وَالظَّنَّ فَإِنَّ الظَّنَّ أَكْذَبُ الْحَدِيثِ وَلَا تَحِسَّسُوا وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا وَلَا تَنَاجَشُوا وَلَا تَحَاسَدُوا وَلَا تَبَاغَضُوا وَلَا تَدَابَرُوا وَكُونُوا عِبَادَ اللَّهِ إِخْوَانًا أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم He says, beware of suspicion. It's not even suspicion. The words aren't shak. So in fact, it would be incorrect to translate it as suspicion. He says, إِيَّاكُمْ وَالظَّنُّ Beware of speculation. Beware of speculation. Beware of conjecture. فَإِنَّ الظَّنَّ أَكْذَبُ الْحَدِيثِ For indeed, conjecture is the greatest lie of all speech. Conjecture is a lie. Speculation is a lie. And one, when one starts thinking, it doesn't stop. The mind works by itself. The brain runs by itself. The brain actually works on connections so that psychologists explain that when a person's feeling subdued or down per se and negative, have you seen how things only get worse? So one bad memory brings about a, another bad memory. And another bad memory brings about another bad memory. And then, before you know it, you are on a downward spiral of negative memories, negative thoughts, sorrowful recollections. Now why is that? Neuroscientists and psychologists explain very well that the brain works on autopilot. Just like an autopilot plane or car, if you take your hands off, it'll just carry on all by itself. And it'll go in any direction. Wherever there's momentum, it'll follow that direction. The only way you can stop it going in a particular direction is to intervene personally. 
So if the car is veering off in that direction, it has no sense. It's just on autopilot, it'll do what it wants. Same with the plane. Unless the pilot or the driver personally and physically intervenes and redirects it, it'll just carry on. But does it take long for the pilot or the driver to redirect it? No. An instant intervention, a quick turn of the wheel or a quick turn of the joystick and job done. And it'll go in another direction. So the brain runs on autopilot and it works by connections. So if you have a negative thought, a negative memory, and you let the brain continue, it'll pick, it'll, it works by connections. So the brain simply searches for something which is relevant and connected to its current thought. So when it finds something in its memory banks, it'll retrieve it. And then it'll look for something else. It looks for connections all the time. So it connects negative to negative. Sorrowful thing to sorrowful thing. Sad thing to sad thing. And it's, an, it's a vicious cycle. The set, so why am I explaining all of this? Because this is what happens with them, speculation and conjecture. The brain carries on. It never stops. So all it takes is for one seed of suspicion, one seed of doubt to be planted. And then what happens? The seed sprouts into a plant. The plant grows into a tree. And before you know it, there's a whole forest of thoughts, where there was absolutely nothing. And thus, ulama from the very beginning have always explained. You may have heard of the term wahm. Wahm means an imaginary thought, i.e. a thought which isn't based on evidence, but a paranoid thought, or doubt and suspicion. For instance, some people, they do wudu. And they've got this nagging doubt related to OCD that I'm not pure enough or my wudu isn't complete or I haven't washed my hands or my face properly or my arms. And we shouldn't scoff at this because unfortunately it's a condition. And I've known people who've come to me and said that it takes me 20 minutes in the bathroom, even after just passing water, to ensure that I've purified myself. And then I come out, and when I do wudu, the same person has told me, and there are other examples of different numbers. One person told me that I do wudu 20 times, I repeat it. And even then I'm plagued by doubts. So this is one doubt, suspicion, imaginary thoughts. So how do you tackle it? And the ulama have explained from the very beginning, centuries ago, there is no dua, there is no particular dua, there is no magic formula. The only way to tackle this is to stop thinking. That's all. Simple solution, stop thinking. And I must be very honest with you, when I was much younger as a child, I used to think that 
When I first heard that, I was only about 14 years old when I first heard that from our, our teachers, that just stop thinking. And I used to think that's a very simplistic answer. It's a, it's a very old answer. Surely there must be something that we can do. And then subhanAllah, 30 years later, or maybe about 25 years later, I was reading uh, a few books, not on this topic, but just about neuroscience and psychology. And subhanAllah, they all say exactly the same. Neuroscientists say exactly the same. And we're not just talking about psychologists, but neuroscientists who have actually been successful in what they call neuroplasticity, which is reshaping the physical brain by thought. And they say you can actually take control of your brain. And they say this is it. There's only one way of doing it. Break the pattern of thought. Your brain, you, can, you should control your brain, not the other way around. So when it comes to conjecture, when it comes to speculation, when it comes to negative thought, the brain, like any other thought, will run on autopilot. You have to intervene. You have to come in between. You have to take control and direct it. Sometimes when we pray salah and say, Allahu Akbar, and you've gone through the whole salah, you've actually prayed your surah al-Fatiha and your other surahs and you've done your tasbih, and before you know it, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. And you don't know where the salah went because your mind was somewhere else altogether. Once your mind starts racing, it's like a runaway train. So you have to take control. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Oh believers, abstain, refrain from, avoid excessive speculation and conjecture. There's no magic formula. Once your brain starts thinking something about anyone else, you have to put a stop to it. It's personal. Like it's haram for me. I can't think about this. Otherwise, Allah explains it beautifully in this verse. Allah first says, abstain, refrain from excessive conjecture. Then Allah says, wala tajassasu, and do not search for faults. Then Allah says, And do not backbite one another. Why does Allah mention all three? Because this is gradual progression. The first will lead to the last. We start thinking about something or someone. And these runaway thoughts build up. Now we're convinced. We're convinced. We thought about it so much. It's etched itself in, into our conscious. It seared itself in our memory, in our brain. So we convinced. Now all we need is proof. So we go out looking for proof. And then there's confirmation bias. We'll see a hundred things which refute that. But they seem to escape us. But if we come across one ambiguous thing which possibly may suggest something close to what we were imagining, we seize upon it as definite proof. Now we're convinced and we've actually got evidence. What happens then? We can't rest. We have to give the good news to the whole world. 
So we begin talking. وَلَا يَغْتَبْ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا And let not one of you back, and do not backbite one another. So we start spreading the good news. Telling everyone. And then Allah ends the verse by saying, Would any one of you wish that you consume the flesh of your dead brother? So subhanAllah, you know what this verse shows? This verse begins with something and ends with something. And shall I tell you what it begins with? It begins with a single thought, which is baseless. It's sheer speculation and mere conjecture. So it begins with a single thought. And it ends with this person feasting on the flesh of his dead brother's corpse. That's what that one thought leads to. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, cut it from the roots. Do not resort to conjecture. Do not speculate. There could be many explanations about why someone has done something, why someone said something. There could be many explanations. And wouldn't we want others to give us the benefits of doubt? Who is pure? Who is not prone to mistakes? Who is not prone to the well to the to gaffes? Who is not prone to making ill judgments? Who is there who doesn't sin? Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam says, "Kullu bani Adam khata wa khairu khata'in al-tawabun." All the children of Adam are sinners. And the best of sinners are the ones who repent. So, speculation and conjecture is also about projection. If our thoughts are, if we are pure, our thoughts will be pure. If we are sinful, our thoughts will be sinful about others. They will be. And... Again, in psychology, this is known as a projection of guilt. And the way it works is that we know what we really are. We know what we really like. And we know our faults. But they are, we know our sins, both present and past. But we can't face up to them. They are too horrible. So it's a very conv- convoluted psychological mechanism. What we do, what our egos do, what our nafs does, what our brains do, is that we know what we truly are like, but we can't live with that. We can't face up to that. We can't accept that about ourselves. So we project it onto others. We throw it onto others. And we see our sins in others. When we see our sins in others, we point at them and say, look how terrible that person is. Look how sinful that person is. And for some strange reason, that makes us feel better. So, if our thought, if we are good, our thoughts about others will be good. The good and innocent will always think good and innocent about others. The corrupt will think everyone else is corrupt. People see others as they see themselves. I've always related that story about two men 
it's just a story, but it illustrates the point that there was one person who used to go for Fajr Salah and pray Salat al-Fajr in the masjid with Jama'ah and return after Fajr. But not immediately, just before sunrise or at sunrise. And there was another person who used to spend the whole night in a den of vice. And this is in a Muslim country. And then after Fajr, all night and then after dawn, just before sunrise or at sunrise, he used to stagger his way home. Now the person coming from the masjid, they were both cross paths. The person coming from the masjid, being who he was and how he was, would always look at the other and think to himself, MashaAllah, just like I've prayed Salah in the masjid and I'm going home, he's also coming home from a masjid. And the other, hoodlum, he used to look at this pious musalli from the masjid and he used to think to himself, see, just as I'm coming from a den of vice, he's also coming from a den of vice. We think of others as we are ourselves. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, don't think about others, think about yourself. And that's why going back to the hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa says, إِيَّاكُمْ وَالظَّنِّ Beware of speculation, conjecture. فَإِنَّ الظَّنَّ أَكْذَبُ الْحَدِيثِ Because conjecture, speculation, is the greatest lie of all speech. There's no truth to it. Beautiful words is the greatest lie. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa says, and do not eavesdrop. And do not search for faults. And do not try to outbid one another in order to harm one another. Meaning, you're at an auction or you're at a sale. You have no intention of buying something. But you see someone else is buying it. So you think to yourself, you know what? I don't want it. And I know he wants it really badly, but I'll make sure he pays for it. Over the odds. So you continue raising the bid with no intention of purchasing. So that even if he does get it, he has to pay an extortionate sum since you artificially inflated the price. This is known as the Najush. Outbidding one another with the intention of harming the other. And undoubtedly what would fall into this category along with uh, dishonesty is when sellers on eBay I've been asked this question I didn't know some of you may be wondering where does he get these ideas from well again refrain from conjecture, <laughs> conjecture and speculation so I've been asked this question a number of times that what's the ruling about this where some eBay sellers they set up a number of accounts, and then on one account, they sell an item. Then they log on using all these other accounts and getting their friends to do the same and make bids. So the bids show up as official bids on eBay, and they are artificially inflating the price because they're all his clients, and he himself is bidding against himself. And all, all of it just to inflate the price. In the hope that whoever, some poor punter, if he does buy it, he's playing uh, an inflated price. 
Prophet says, And do not outbid one another with the intention of harming each other. Then he continues, And do not be envious of each other. And do not hate one another. And do not turn your backs to one another. And be servants of Allah as brothers. But all of that comes later. Subhanallah. All of that comes later. Hate, turning away from one another, outbidding one another in order to harm each other, eavesdropping, spying on each other. All of that comes later. What's the first thing he mentions in the hadith? <laughs> Beware of conjecture, for indeed speculation is the greatest lie of all speech. Cut it from the roots. Think only good of each other. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And do not search for one another's faults. Do not search for faults. And this is a natural follow-on, it's a natural consequence to conjecture and speculation. Do not search for one another's faults. And that's by making inquiries, investigating, researching, finding evidence, proof, searching for faults in each other, about each other. It's completely haram. And we should never fool ourselves into thinking that I'm doing something good by trying to search for evidence. If it doesn't concern you, it doesn't concern you. As we learnt about Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was a public figure. He was the leader of the Ummah. He was a ruler of Medina. He was a prophet of Islam. For all the people of Medina, Muslim and non-Muslim, he was the chief ruler the chief judge. He was the military commander. He was the political ruler. He was the chief judge. All of the people of Medina, including the non-Muslims, had to refer to the Prophet ﷺ as per their agreement. So he was a very public figure. And he, most importantly, he was a moral, spiritual guide and the messenger of Allah for the whole creation. His most beloved wife, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, was also a public figure. And she was falsely accused of infidelity. And it was a very serious matter. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not tell the people of Medina, even though this point was made into an all-engulfing scandal which lit the city of Medina alight. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not tell the people of Medina, you should have discovered the truth. You should have made the inquiries before opening your mouths. You should have gone to the Messenger you should have obtained proof before you said anything. Allah did not say that. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the people of Medina, it never concerned you. Therefore, it was haram for you to even talk about it. 
let alone go out and search for evidence, find proof, one way or the other. And as some people say, we, we make an inquiries in order to disprove the point. So we're doing something good. We're actually searching for evidence to the contrary so that we can provide proof and disprove the point. The onus and responsibility and the, proof of, uh, and the burden of proof lies on the claimant, not the innocent. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, it never concerned you. So it wasn't even permissible for you to talk about it. And Allah mentioned two things in that regard in just the set of verses of Surah An-Nur. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَوْلَا إِذْ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتُ بِأَنفُسِهِمْ خَيْرًا وَقَالُوا هَذَا إِفْكُمْ مُبِينٌ When you heard this, this ifk, this calumny, this allegation, this great lie, why wasn't it that when you heard this, believing men and believing women thought good of themselves? They thought good about themselves. Now, what's the meaning of thinking good about themselves? I've explained it before in detail in Hadith al-Ifq and on other occasions uh, in my commentary of the whole Hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. So please refer to that. But in summary, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this, was, this is clearly demonstrated by Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu, and this was before the revelation of the Qur'an. This is how the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were. Even before the revelation of the Qur'an, about this, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu and it's also mentioned about other Sahaba, he was seated with his wife, Umm Ayyub al-Ansariyah, she said to him, have you heard, very casually, she said to him, have you heard about Aisha and Mistah? So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu said to her, O Umm Ayyub, would you ever be guilty of such a sin? And she was horrified. She was horrified. And she protested her innocence. So Abu Ayyub radiallahu anhu, speaking to his own wife, he said to her, Fa'a khayrun minki, then know that Aisha is far better than you. If you can't imagine this thing about yourself, then how could you entertain such a thought about the mother of the believers who is far, far better than you. This is the meaning of why didn't believing men and believing women think good of themselves. So if you want to think about someone, don't think about someone else, think about yourself. And if you think good of yourself, why not think good of others? We all like to believe that I'm innocent, my Parents are good and innocent. My siblings are good and innocent. We're all pious. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَا تُزَكُّوا أَنفُسَكُمْ هُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِمَنِ اتَّقَى Do not declare, declare yourselves to be pure. Allah knows best who is the most wary and fearing of Allah. And before that Allah says, He, Allah, Knows you better. When you were fetuses in the wombs of your mothers, therefore do not declare yourselves to be pure. Allah knows best who is most fearing and wary of Allah. So we like to think of ourselves as being good and pure. And yet we think ill of others. So here Allah told the people of Medina, 
that when you heard this, far from going out to investigate and find proof and research the matter, no. Why didn't believing men and believing women think good of themselves and then do what? وَقَالُوا هَذَا إِفْكُمْ مُبِينَ And straight away declare that this is a clear lie. And then later on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Why wasn't it that when you heard this, the believing, you said, مَا يَكُونُ لَنَا أَن نَتَكَلَّمَ بِهَذَا سُبْحَانَكَ هَذَا بُهْتَانٌ عَظِيمٌ That it is not permissible for us to even speak of this. May you, may, hallowed be your name, O oh Allah. May you be hallowed. This is a great calumny and allegation. So even about Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, despite her being a public figure, despite the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam being who he was, Allah didn't tell them, oh, before you speak, obtain proof. Before you speak, investigate. Before you say anything, verify the facts, ascertain the truth. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, it was haram for you to speak about it, it was haram for you to discuss it, it was haram for you to think about it. And if anything, you should have been thinking about yourselves and not others. And that's how it is even today for us. So, do not search for faults. We may think we're investigating, we're ascertaining the truth, we're verifying the facts. But Allah declares it searching for faults. It doesn't concern you, and as I've explained on numerous occasions, whenever, some, whenever an allegation is made, it only concerns those people that it impacts directly. If an employee is accused of something, then it affects the employer. The whole idea of ascertaining the truth and verifying the facts and investigating means that the employer should verify the facts, obtain proof, make sure they have all the evidence before they make any judgments or take any action, because it concerns them directly. Similarly with a husband or a wife, if an allegation is made against the husband or the wife, then before they make any rash judgments, before they rush into any decision, they should investigate, verify the facts, ascertain the truth. Because these matters concern the spouses, yes, they are entitled to search for proof. Not anyone else. It doesn't concern anyone else. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ says, مِنْ حُسْنِ إِسْلَامِ الْمَرْءِ تَرْكُهُ مَا لَا Part of the goodness of a person's Islam is his abandoning and shunning and leaving that which doesn't concern him. If you want to be a good Muslim, if you want your Islam to be good, just make sure that you'd never concern yourself with things that don't concern you. That will make your Islam beautiful. But if you want to corrupt your religion, if you want to corrupt your faith, and you want to be a bad Muslim, by the words of the Messenger وسلم, then concern yourself with other people's affairs. Concern yourself with that which doesn't really and shouldn't really concern you. So, وَلَاتَجَسَّسُوا Do not search for faults. The very Allahu Akbar. And you know, when we search for one another's faults, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal relates a hadith in his Musnad. And the same hadith is related from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah. And 
even from Al-Bara ibn Azib radiyallahu anha, even from Thawban radiyallahu anha. So actually a number of Sahaba radiyallahu anhum all relate this hadith. So the words of this hadith in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal is from another Sahabi Abu Barzah al-Aslami radiyallahu anha. So Abu Barzah al-Aslami radiyallahu anhu says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam announced and we learn that Abdullah ibn Umar says that he raised his noble voice. And in another hadith, he spoke so loudly, because he was passionate, he was angry. The Messenger وسلم, spoke so loudly that from inside the masjid, women who were in their homes at a distance could hear the Messenger, even though Prophet ﷺ was softly spoken, very softly spoken. He was very passionate and angry. And you can just imagine him saying the following words with passion and with anger. Loudly he said, Ya ma'ashara man amana bilisanih wa lam yadkhulil imanu qalbah. La taghtabu al-muslimin wa la tattabi'u awratihim. فَإِنَّهُ مَنْ يَتَّبِعْ عَوْرَاتِهِمْ يَتَّبِعِ اللَّهُ عَوْرَتَهُ وَمَنْ يَتَّبِعِ اللَّهُ عَوْرَتَهُ يَفْضَحُ فِي بَيْتِهِ The Messenger وسلم, loudly and passionately proclaimed that all those who have believed with their tongues but Iman has not entered their hearts do not backbite the Muslims وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا عَوْرَاتِهِمْ and do not search for their faults. For he who searches for their faults, Allah searches for his fault. See the difference? فَإِنَّهُ مَنْ يَتَّبِعْ عَوْرَاتِهِمْ يَتَّبِعِ اللَّهُ عَوْرَتَهُ Plural and single. For he who searches for their faults, plural, Allah searches for his fault, singular. وَمَنْ يَتَّبِعِ اللَّهُ عَوْرَتَهُ and whoever's fault, singular, Allah searches for. يَفْضَحُ فِي بَيْتِهِ Allah will disgrace him in his own home. So when we search for one another's faults, do we not know that the same could happen to us? And that even if it doesn't happen to us in the dunya, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not need to search for any of our faults Allah is aware. Allah says, it is he, he, he knows the treachery of the eyes. And he knows that which the hearts conceal. And Allah judges with the truth. Allah knows the treachery of the eyes. So we may cast rapid glances here and there. We may steal glances here and there. The man's walking with his wife along the road. And the wife's keeping a watchful eye over her husband. And he's conscious of that. So he looks around, makes sure he doesn't move his head. But he steals glances here and there. And his wife doesn't catch him. Even though she is the jealous, protective type. But... 
Allah knows the treachery of the eyes. And okay, anyone can, if someone's in front, they can see the treachery of the eyes. Allah goes further. Allah even knows the lust and the desire and the secrets of the hearts. And Allah judges by the truth. Even if you happen to come across the fault of a Muslim, you should never search for it. But even if you happen to come across the fault of a Muslim, what should you do? In many ahadith, Prophet has told us, وَمَنْ سَتَرَ مُسْلِمًا Whoever conceals the fault of a Muslim, whoever shields a Muslim, Allah will shield him on the day of resurrection. And in one hadith, whoever conceals the fault of a Muslim, then it is as though he has restored to life, he has revived an infant girl that was buried alive. Some of the Arabs will want to bury their newborn daughters out of shame and for fear of poverty and fear of a burden. Prophet said, whoever conceals a fault of a Muslim, it is as though he has given life to a, an infant girl who was buried alive. You may have heard of the same Abu Ayyub al-Ansari Abu Ayyub al-Ansari the same Sahabi I spoke about earlier. You may have heard that he once travelled from Medina. He had heard a hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he wanted. He learned that there is another Sahabi who heard the same hadith, and he wanted to hear the same hadith from the other Sahabi that he had heard. He knew the hadith. He had heard the hadith. <coughs> And the Sahabi that he learned of was Uqbat ibn Amir who was in Egypt. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari traveled by camel from Medina all the way across the desert, across the Sinai Peninsula, all the way into Egypt. And there he made his way to Uqbat ibn Amir house. And he met with him and he told him that I have come this whole distance because there is a hadith which I have heard from the Messenger وسلم, and that you have heard the same hadith and I wanted you to hear it from you as well. So Uqbat ibn Amir after a discussion he confirmed with him he recited the same hadith to him. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari raised his hands and said Allahu Akbar and then he refused to remain in Egypt and went back to Medina. He traveled that distance to listen to one hadith. Do you know what that hadith was? Same one. Whoever conceals a fault of a Muslim in the dunya, Allah will conceal his fault on the day of judgment. That's if you happen to come across someone's sin, someone's indiscretion, someone's fault. So even if you do come across it inadvertently, this is what you should do. Conceal one another's faults. Prophet ﷺ told the Sahaba, عنهم, do not bring me complaints of each other. 
For I wish to come out to you in such a state that my heart is clean in relation to everyone. He did not wish to harbour any ill will, any ill feeling towards anyone. We shouldn't be poisoning one another's minds about each other. This is how we create conflict. Is there any parent who hasn't said an ill word about their child? Is there? Is there any parent who hasn't said an ill word about their child? Don't parents, mothers and fathers, get angry with their children? Scold them? Tell them off? And we're talking about adults, not young children, adults. Tell them off, rightfully so. I'm only speaking about when they are justified in doing so. Or maybe because of what they think and what they believe. But don't they get angry? Don't they say things? Don't they complain? Don't parents complain about one son to another or one daughter to another? Yet does anyone hold it against them? Does anyone hold it against them? That's human nature. What we shouldn't do is carry these tales to one another. How would it be, imagine, if a family member spent most of their time on the phone ringing up siblings and saying, Mum said this about you. Mum said that about you. Mum said this about you. Dad said this about you. Imagine what would happen. It'd leave the other person in the gutter. And not only about, not just how they would feel, but it would poison their mind about their own beloved father and mother. So the intelligent, we all do it. We all complain. For Allah's sake, we complain about ourselves. True. I mean, you have to be a real psychopath. Not to, not to ever think negatively about yourself. True. We all have our moments of self-doubt, self-censure, self-criticism. Don't we? Don't we in secret grit our teeth, bite our tongue, put our head down in shame and think, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, I was wrong. Oh, I wish I could take back time. I wish I could turn the hands of the clock. Turn back the hands of the clock. And we're not talking about major things, just a gaffe, just something we said, the way we behaved on one occasion. We actually go red in the face afterwards in privacy and say, I wish I hadn't done that, I wish I hadn't said that. We censure ourselves, we criticise ourselves, we are negative about ourselves, we blame ourselves. And that's why I said earlier, everyone knows the truth about themselves. Allah says about man, Name man is very observant about himself, even though he may make his excuses. Man knows himself. We all know ourselves. So aren't we self-critical, self-deprecating, self-censuring? Aren't we? <coughs> so don't we have our self-doubts? So if we believe this about ourselves, even though we love ourselves so much, then why should we imagine that others won't think the same of us? Or others may not say things about us? We're talking about those who have the right, fathers, mothers, those who have been wronged at our hands. The dangerous thing is when people carry these tales. 
So they relate from A to B, B to C. When your friends come to you and say to you that, oh, such and such, such and such a person said some this about you, even if they aren't speaking the truth, you should say to your friend even that, are you my friend? What good does this achieve? What good does this achieve? I remember once someone rang me and I was on my way to a conference and it was a major day, it was the completion of Sahih al-Bukhari. I had to do the completion and give, us, give the main speech and it was a momentous occasion, a number of students were graduating and I was on my way there and someone called me in the morning, so we were travelling on the motorway and he took up about 20 minutes of my time. And in, in those 20 minutes, he spent about 19 minutes relating to me what a few people had said. And all negative stuff. And then at the end of it, he said, So, Sheikh, how is everything else? I said, Alhamdulillah. So, Sheikh, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> Allahu Akbar. I, I had to bite my tongue and say, Jazakumullahu khaira for your hadiyah for today, for your gift for today. What good did it achieve? Nothing. I heard one very great scholar say in one of his speeches, he said, whichever friend comes to you and carries tales from other people and tells you what others have said about you, then realize that they are not your friends, they are your enemies. What good does it achieve? So even if we come across another person's fault, inadvertently, we should shield it, we should conceal it, by carrying tales to one another, this is how we create conflict. And then when we do, even if we do end up seeing something, or we actually go out and investigate, but well, we shouldn't, because when you search for faults, the, you, you will end up being very biased in your search. And as I said, you may see 999 things that actually can uh, confound you and that disprove your allegations or your suspicions. But you find one thing, then because of confirmation bias, you will seize upon that one thing and actually strongly believe whatever you want to believe. Or your nafs wants you to believe. And then after that, what happens? You can't rest. So you go and backbite. You go and share it with others. That's why the Prophet said, Do not backbite the Muslims and do not search for their faults. They all go hand in hand. There's a story about Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab. It's related by a number of authors. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu Imam Kharaiti rahmatullahi actually relates this in his Masawi al-Akhlaq. Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu what happened one, one night? Remember he used to search, he used to walk the streets of Medina, he used to patrol. So one night he heard some, a man singing in a house. And he heard other sounds. And Umar became suspicious. 
So what he did is that to ensure that he could catch the person, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an, instead of going from the front door, because if he had knocked and they would have had time to sort themselves out, so Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an, he had a man singing, and the reason he was singing because he had a he was inebriated, intoxicated. Or maybe not fully, but uh, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an, that's what he suspected. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an climbed the wall from the rear and jumped into the courtyard of the house. And there he saw the man with a goblet of wine drinking. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an shouted at him and said, O enemy of your soul, did you really think that you would engage in such behavior and that Allah would conceal your sin? So the man spoke up and said, O Amirul Mu'mineen, I have committed one sin. I have committed one sin. But you have committed three. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wala tajassasu and do not search for faults, do not spy, and you have spied on me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and come to the homes from their front doors. And you did not come from my front door, you leapt over the wall. And, Allah, and these are verses of the Quran. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لا تدخلوا بيوتا غير بيوتكم حتى تستأنسوا وتسلموا على أهلها and do not enter homes that don't belong to you other than your homes until you seek permission from their occupants and that until you give them salam and you did not seek my permission to enter my home so Amir al-Mu'mineen I confess I have committed one sin but you have committed three so Sayyidina Umar radiallahu remember he would always halt when he was confronted with the Quran that was the beauty of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anh. He was a man of great passion and a man of great anger. But Allahu Akbar. He would never get his he would never allow his anger to get the better of him when it came to the Holy Quran. Anyone could read a verse of the Quran to Umar radiallahu and he would fall silent. Totally. Allahu Akbar. A man of that courage, a man of that rage. It doesn't mean he was a raging person, he was very controlled. Historians, non-Muslim historians believe that what Sayyidina Umar from a purely worldly military, economic and social perspective and political perspective, what Sayyidina Umar achieved in his 10 years was remarkable. Unprecedented. So, Sayyidina Umar was an amazing individual, but he was a man who struck fear and sheer awe in people. And of course, he had a temper, but he would never, ever allow his anger. To come in the way of the Qur'an. Never. For some remarkable reason, whenever he heard a single verse of the Qur'an, Sayyidina Umar an's anger didn't just subside, it dissipated, it disappeared completely. 
So the man said to him, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, I have committed one sin, you have committed three. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an accepted. He accepted. And he said to him, I make a promise that I won't do this again as long as you make a promise that you won't do this again. So the man said, I promise, O Amir al-Mu'mineen. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an left. What that story illustrates is that look how serious his sin was. He was drinking. But when he told Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, I've committed one sin. You've committed three. And the first one was, Wala tajassasu and do not search for faults. Even though he was Amir al Mu'mineen, he was the ruler. He was the ruler. In fact, say, the Prophet وسلم, informs us in a hadith that when a ruler subjects people to suspicion of sadahum, then he corrupts them. When the populace believes that they are always suspected, this corrupts things. It corrupts their well-being, it corrupts their mind, it corrupts their mentality, it can even corrupt their behavior. They are no longer at ease. And that's not healthy. So, that's a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, wala tajassasu, do not search for faults. Wala yaghtab ba'dukum ba'da, and do not backbite one another. Backbiting is a major sin. It's a sin of the tongue. Backbiting, what is backbiting? We like to think that backbiting is when I'm speaking terribly about another person. No, Imam Muslim rahmatullahi relates a hadith in his sahih. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, أَتَدْرُونَ مِلْغِيبَةً Do you know what ghiba is backbiting? قَالُوا اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمُ They said Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam know best. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, ذِكْرُكَ أَخَاكَ بِمَا يَكْرَهُ You're mentioning something about your brother which he dislikes. So they said, Ya Rasulullah, what about if what I say about him is true? So the Prophet وسلم, said, In kana If what you say about him is true of him, then you have committed backbiting against him. But if, you, if what you say is not true about him, then you have slandered him. So the, the argument that, oh, what I'm saying is true, you know, once Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, a woman came. So when she left, the Prophet, she said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, look how beautiful that woman was. She actually said that. She said, look how beautiful and fair that lady was. If only she wasn't so short. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to her, O Aisha, you have committed ghibah and backbiting against her. So she protested. She said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm only telling you what's true about her. Because she was praising her. And what was factual, that, oh, she's very beautiful, very fair. Not fair in complexion, meaning uh, fair as in beauty and handsomeness. She's a handsome, beautiful lady. If only she wasn't so short. So the Prophet wasallam said, Oh, Aisha, you have... Uh, Backbite to her. 
So she said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm only telling you, I only said what's true about her. So the Prophet said, indeed, that's what's backbiting. Backbiting is to say something about someone in their absence, which they would dislike. That's it. No other explanation. It doesn't matter whether you've got the guts to say it to their face, as we love to say. It doesn't matter whether it's true. It doesn't matter whether you've got the courage to say it to their face. What's the definition of backbiting in the words of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Backbiting, ghiba, is to say something about someone in their absence which they would dislike. You could be talking about their height, their complexion, their weight, their appearance, their clothing. It doesn't matter. If they would dislike such a thing being said, then that's backbiting. And backbiting is a major sin. Inshallah, we don't have time today, and I'm going to end uh, in a few minutes. But I will hopefully, maybe after the completion of Surah Al-Hujarat sometime in the near future, I'll speak individually, I'll, I'll, I'll give individual sessions on these particular topics. Spying, suspicion, and backbiting. But just as a summary for now, there are so many hadith about backbiting. Jabir ibn Abdullah radiyallahu anhu relates, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal records this hadith in his Muslim that once he says we were walking with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when there was a sudden foul stench that rose. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, do you know what this stench is? Stinking, stench. They said, no ya Rasulullah. So he said, this is the smell of those people who do ghibah and who backbite others. Backbiting, ultimately, is to consume the flesh of your fellow Muslim. Allah has likened it to cannibalism. That's what it is. We may not think of it, but Allah himself says this is akin to cannibalism. And for us, it's normal. We backbite whilst fasting. We're very careful. We'll avoid water. We'll ring up the alim and say, can I take this injection? Can I take this medicine? And every day, can I eat this E number? Can I eat that E number? Minuscule amount. E number this, E number that. Can I eat this? Can I eat that? And yet we happily gorge on each other's flesh. Because that's what it is. And that's exactly how the Prophet ﷺ would describe it. Once a sahabi radiallahu anhu, he, was, he stood up and he left. So another man who was sitting there, he spoke ill of him after he left. So a man, the Prophet was seated with the Sahaba, one of them got up and left. So after he left, another one spoke of him. He spoke ill of him. So the Prophet said to him, pick your teeth. So he said, Ya Rasulullah, why are you asking me to pick my teeth? Have I eaten meat or anything? So he said, you've just consumed the flesh of your brother. Once Prophet ﷺ was traveling, riding, and he came across the carcass of a dead mule. Well, the carcass of a mule. So the Prophet ﷺ pointed to it and said, it is far better for one of you to fully consume and eat this whole dead mule than it is to consume the flesh of his fellow Muslim by backbiting. 
In fact, there's a famous, uh, well, it's not very famous, but uh, one author actually narrates this story with a, with a sound chain of narration, Al-Diya al-Maqdisi, in his Al-Ahadith al-Mukhtara. He relates that once Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar, when they were traveling, there was someone who was looking after them and serving them. And he would prepare their food for them. So one day, the other Sahabi, he overslept. So Abu Bakr and Umar awoke. And he was supposed to prepare the food for them, but he was still sleeping. So they awoke. And there was no food. So they, they said, one or both of them said, that Look at him, he just sleeps a lot. That was that. He woke up. So they said to him, no food? So he said, go and find some food. Maybe go to the Messenger وسلم, and say to him that Abu Bakr and Umar request for some food. So the man went to the Prophet According to some narrations, the suggestion is that this was actually Salman al-Farsi. Anyway, the Prophet he approached him and he said, Ya Rasulullah, Abu Bakr and Umar send me to you. They convey their salam and ask you that, do you have any food to provide for them? So the Prophet said to him, what food do they want? They've eaten. Go back and tell them. So he came and he said to them that the Messenger says that what food do you want? You've eaten. So they were both very fearful. So they hurriedly went to the Messenger and they said, Ya Rasulullah, what makes you believe that we have eaten? So the Prophet said, you consume the flesh of your fellow Muslims. And even now I can see pieces of meat and flesh in between your teeth. And that was Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah. And as I said, Imam Diyawuddin al-Maqdisi rahmatullahi alayhi, he relates this hadith with an authentic chain of narration all the way to Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah in his al-Hadith al-Mukhtara. So then... They said, Ya Rasulullah, seek forgiveness for us. Do istighfar for us. Pray to Allah for forgiveness. So the Prophet ﷺ said, No, he will seek forgiveness for you. Meaning, you have to seek forgiveness from him. If anything, he is the one who will forgive you or pray for your forgiveness, not me. There are many ahadith about backbiting and inshallah I'll devote uh, one session to that. Let's end with the uh, verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Would one of you wish that he eats the flesh of his brother, Maita, dead? So fear Allah, be wary of Allah. Sorry, that you would surely detest this. So and be wary of Allah. Inna Allah rahim indeed Allah is oft relenting, meaning he turns to his servants in accepting their repentance. Rahim, he is full of mercy. So we still have a chance to repent and mend our ways. Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi, he says that ever since I learned that backbiting is haram, I have never done ghibah against anyone. And when did he learn that backbiting was haram? 
in his adulthood, no, as a child. That means Imam Bukhari says, from childhood I have never committed the sin of ghiba. And there are many stories of many ulama. They protected their tongues. They would not gorge on each other's flesh. And we may be shocked about this. Allah actually likens it to cannibalism. But indeed, I once saw a documentary about cannibalism in the Southeast Asian islands, Papua New Guinea. I don't know if any of you have seen the same documentary, but in there they went and deep into the jungles and they interviewed people from villages who actually used to practice cannibalism till, the ni- till 1974, I believe, when it was outlawed first in that country. But because these are remote tribes living in the remote jungles and forests, they, they had their own practices and they actually used to practice cannibalism. And they interviewed them. And when they interviewed them, some of the old people who had actually eaten before, eaten human flesh, so, when they talk to them, it's like it was something so normal. One of them, when they interviewed him, they're actually asking him, how did you uh, get this human? How did you uh, end up eating him? And he's describing how they caught this person, how they skinned him how they roasted him on a pit, um, how they ate his flesh, what it tastes like. And whilst he's describing all of this, he's actually eating something at the same time. He wasn't flesh, he was some, he may have been a, a large vegetable or a coconut or something, but he was very casually, so he's having bites and in between morsels, just chatting away. It's like someone eating a Mars bar and talking very casually yeah yeah i went here i went there so he's like eating and in between morsels he's in gory detail he's describing how they skin killed this human skinned him roasted him over a pit and cut his flesh and ate him what it tastes like and they say that all of them consistently said one thing which is that um, they all called humans long pig because they say the flesh is exactly like pork. It's just like eating a, a pig. So they actually named the human meal as long pig. They, all of them, in their simple tribal language, consistently, all the people who had ever consumed human flesh, when they spoke to them, they all call this long pig. So they called humans long pigs when they were consumed cooked and consumed because they said the flesh is exactly the same this is one more reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the flesh of khanazir of swine haram because it's once we declare that to be haram we are one step further removed from the sin of eating human flesh but the reason I mention this it was so natural was so normal. I mean, he was actually, it's like he's describing uh, the last time he had kebabs, and that was it. So casual. And I mention that because we may find that shocking. I mean, I can see the expressions on everyone's faces. But when it comes to 
backbiting, we have become so accustomed to it. It's normal for us. It's absolutely normal. We worried about eating halal and haram and e numbers. But when it comes to consuming one another's flesh, which Allah describes as cannibalism in the Quran, we find it absolutely normal. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, surely you would detest this. Of course you would. So just as you detest that, فَكَرِهْتُمُوا Detest this. وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهُ بِوَارِي أَوَ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَوَّابُ الرَّحِيمُ Verily Allah is off-relenting and most merciful. I end with the full verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O believers, refrain from excessive conjecture, speculation. For indeed, some speculation is a sin. I didn't explain that, which simply means that once you begin thinking, there will come a point when your thoughts are no longer innocent but straight into haram and are sinful themselves, even before you do anything. And do not search for faults. And do not backbite one another. And one more thing. When we think, even if we don't speak to anyone, the ulama have mentioned a very beautiful point. If you speak ill about someone, and what's ghiba? The definition of ghiba? If you say something about someone which they dislike in their absence, that's backbiting. So when you don't mention it to anyone, but you just think of it yourself, you're still committing the sin of backbiting because you're doing backbiting with yourself. You're doing ghiba about someone to yourself. You're speaking to yourself, you're speaking to your soul, you're doing ghiba about someone to your soul. And do not backbite one another. Would one of you wish that you consume the flesh of your dead fellow? Surely you would detest this. And be wary of Allah. Indeed, Allah is off-relenting and accepting uh, his servant's repentance. Rahim and full of most merciful. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.